It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, 1-866-408-7669. We have a lot to discuss today. We'll do it with the guy who wants to be the next governor of Texas. Governor uh, Abbott has the job now. Another Republican, Alan West, wants it next. Uh, He was also running the Republican Party in the GOP for Texas. And by the way, a big number. Republicans, excuse me, Hispanics in Texas were surveyed. What do you think of President Biden's job? 56% 56% disapprove of the job he's doing. Why wouldn't they if you see what's happening in the border? Why wouldn't they if you saw what's happening with the way he is creating division uh, within these states when it comes to vaccines and masks? So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. We don't need the fun police to come in and try and micromanage and tell us what we should or shouldn't be doing. My drink was sitting at the table. I got up and started dancing because I was feeling the spirit. (laughs) I wasn't thinking about a mask. Right. We aren't ever thinking about a mask. We don't want to wear the masks. If we feel we're in danger, we know the rules. But that's a mayor who wants you to wear a mask, insists on it, will fine you with not doing it. That's Mayor London Breed of San Francisco feeling it. The mandate mayhem. San Fran Mayor London Breed feels the music and decides she can dance maskless, while New York toddlers can't go to preschool without a mask. Vaccine demands gets one New York restaurant hostess pummeled, and the military mandate has many men and women in uniform, including many Navy SEALs, deciding to call it quits. Thanks, Joe, for bringing us together. Number two. How about the message from our vice president? Where is she? She was supposed to be in charge of all of these migration issues, going to those northern triangle countries. That's obviously not Haiti. That was one of her first international trips with the message, do not come here illegally. People aren't listening. No, they're not. And that is Stephanie Rule of MSNBC. Unbelievable, right? Can't ignore anymore the border crisis so beyond border agent patrol. Even friendly news outlets like that one can't help but notice. The latest on the ongoing illegal immigrant and human trafficking catastrophe unfolding now in Texas. Number one. We're still getting hammered for how the withdrawal from Afghanistan happened. Many people believe it was time. It's just the way that it was done. You look at what's happening with immigration. You look at France now saying that uh, they've been betrayed by the United States. What are we doing to justify or explain what appears to be very bad behavior on our part now? We don't see it that way. That is that is CBS Crisis Central. President Biden is looking for a better week. First stop in the U.N., then tries to get back to build back America plan. But the problem is him. Afghanistan pullout, his idea. Ignore the border crisis, his choice. Inflation, says it was going to be short term, still around. Infuriating allies, that's like France, and embarrassed the U.K. yesterday. It does not persuade moderates in it to compromise on his social spending bonanza. Meanwhile, Cinema and Mansion, specifically in one-on-one meetings last week, he kills innocents with the drone. It happens in war, but that's not what he told us. And the booster bungle. He said, we used, we need it. It's clear. It turns out it's not, and it won't be. Should I go on? 
No, I'm not going to go on. But I'm telling you, what I think significant is is approval ratings that they say 42%, some say 44%, which means it's usually four points less. Pure performance. The pandemic he inherited, but he also inherited a vaccine. He had a chance to look like a hero because he was a more traditional president. He promised normalcy. The things that he has messed up is abnormal in every way, shape, and form. A couple other things when it comes to crisis control. More on the miscues. Boris Johnson told reporters on his way to the UNG at General Assembly today, where the president's going to be speaking during our show, that he didn't believe it was likely that the U.S. would agree to lift its ban on vaccinated foreign travelers. Then he said it wouldn't be likely this week. Hours later, the White House did exactly that. Why it matters? For the second time in less than a week, a major U.S. foreign policy decision by the Biden administration has caught one of our closest allies by surprise. The last one had France pull back their ambassador. Try to blame Donald Trump for that. Even they can't do that. True, they can't do that. They will try to do that. Uh, meanwhile, when it comes to uh, when it comes to actually the chaos is taking place, I think it's kind of interesting to see uh, at a place that. Uh, he's usually supposed to do well, and that is foreign policy, he claimed. Here's Marco Rubio on the self-made crises from the man who's anything but self-made. Cut one. Joe Biden was elected on the promise that he was going to return normalcy, competency to the American government. That's what he argued and said, as if there was an absence of it. And what you see now is a cascade of calamities and disasters, and they were all created by him and by actions he took. You can't go around for months sort of arguing that there's not going to be any border security and creating the perception and the reality that people can enter the country and they're going to get to stay and not expect for thousands of people to come. Remember, these were the guys that were saying, I'm not going to politicize COVID. We're not going to politicize the vaccine and the science. Those pronouncements out of the White House about an additional booster shot was a political statement. So on issue after issue, it's a broken promise and incompetence and the country. It's not even ideological anymore. It's incompetence and, and, and a lack of leadership. And the country is beginning to pay a tremendous price for it. Huge, a huge price for it. Unnecessary. The pandemic, not his fault. To not pursue the origin theory is his fault. To have a phony investigation, to get a report back in 60 days when you don't, inter- you don't interview any of the scientists, the WHO people, people like Jamie Metzl, whistleblowers, and tell me that you're still inconclusive, that's your fault. Not being able to, to, to berate people when you would, who aren't getting the vaccine when 75% of the country actually has gotten at least one shot, which is quite a good number. Uh, to say ahead of time that, you, that we need a booster shot and have the FDA says, no, you don't unless you're over 65. This is stuff that shows that they are not hitting on all cylinders, and he never had a fastball, let alone at 78. Of all people, Chuck Todd cut five. I think he's got a, a, a pretty big uh, credibility crisis on his hands because all of these problems in some ways showed up after he said – Something basically the exact opposite. Afghanistan withdrawal wasn't going to be messy. This wasn't going to look like Saigon. Uh, the booster shots. And, of course, the border has been, you know, whether this is, you could we can talk about the border problems. You could say there's years in the making. But the, the, it's pretty clear we have a bigger problem now than we've had in years. And this is a these policies have turned into becoming a magnet. So it's got a lot of work to do. So if you look at a Fox News poll about what you care about, and I want to hear from you, one 408 7669 Number one, 82% compare most about inflation and prices. That's, by the way, 
Uh, I understand, according to experts, that's a key to the suburbs. You go in there and you go shopping, and if it's woman or guy, whoever does the shopping in the family, traditional family, goes in there, and they're getting less and paying more. They leave with less. We'll have to change lines because it's too expensive, yet their wages have not gone up to equal inflation. From buying tires to buying cereal, you can you, there is no single thing that can affect families more pervasively and holistically than that. 74% say the pandemic. Fine. All you're doing is berating us, telling us to put masks in in blue states on two-year-olds. You have the mayors and governors, Democrats, who have masks for us but not for them. You see the Hollywood, uh, I think, is a perfect example of that. Uh, 73% say Afghanistan. And I'll stop there for a second because Afghanistan is all President Biden's fault. On every list over the last maybe 13 years, Afghanistan is always last. The American people are tired of this war. They don't talk about this war anymore. Why are we still there? Fine. President Trump wanted to leave the war. Um, unfortunately, it was the uh, I, President Bush got it, knew we had to succeed there. President Obama said it was the good war. He wanted to surge there. All along, Joe Biden wanted out of there. Originally, he said we got to rebuild and make a democracy. He changed his mind and was militant about it and bullheaded to do it. And that's exactly what happened. Not my words. Not my sources, which, by the way, say the same thing, but they're not great, so they're very strong sources. But they're not the source I had with Trump, obviously. But here's Bob Woodward, cut six. A lot of reporting we did on Afghanistan and the the pullout that Biden was insisting that, you know, we got to get out now. And it turns out in March of this year, Biden's top cabinet officers, Tony Blinken, the secretary of state, Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, propose formally in all of these discussions of slow down the process. Austin particularly says, gate the withdrawal. A few here, a few now, don't do it. And one sweep. And you now look back at that, and that probably was good advice that was not taken. You know, listen, and I, people are be saying it's, it's a CYA. Not really. Because Bob Woodward's book was out already and printed in final printing before the Afghanistan disaster. For all you knew, it was going to come out great. They're on the record saying this is not the case. Either they did it directly or in General Milley's case, it seems like he's a firsthand source. So they were on the record. They could look bad right now. They could look like the Washington establishment trying to uh, steamroll a president again. But instead, a thick-skulled president sticks with the mantra instead of the reality on the ground. And we still have thousands of allies, green card holders, and Americans in Afghanistan. Just spoke to Scott Mann of the Pineapple Express on television. We're going to get him here. And he is engineering free of charge, along with some other great special operators, uh, in a third country to find a way to get people out now through land. Because they don't feel as though they go to the airport. They are hiding out, scared to death, trying to evade, keep moving the Taliban, who seem to be holding us up because of this. This seems to be a non—we a, won't admit it, but it's happening. This seems to be a hostage crisis. Real quick on the border, I cannot tell you how bad things are. I talk to people on and off camera, 
and it is worse than it looks. But if it wasn't my my opinion, if it wasn't for our drone team showing the thousands pouring across our borders from a height that goes beyond getting permission from. We have permission because it's free skies, and we're showing you what's happening at our border. We revealed the bridge, 8,000 by Wednesday, 16,000 by Sunday, mostly from Haiti, mostly from Haitians who have been in other countries, Chile, Brazil, and others for the last five, ten years, and now got word, I don't know how, that this is the time to come. Yeah, blame Facebook on this. Unbelievable. But now here's what's going on at the border. 16,000, they want to claim that we're sending them back. Nobody buys that we're sending them back. This is a outrage. This is how bad it is. Stephanie Rule of MSNBC brought up the person in charge, supposedly, the woman who's tossing the coin at Howard University football games, the vice president, cut 14. How about the message from our vice president? Where is she? She was supposed to be in charge of all of these migration issues, going to those northern triangle countries. That's obviously not Haiti. That was one of her first international trips with the message, do not come here illegally. People aren't listening. Yeah, they're not listening, but I'm, it, takes, it takes me aback when I hear anything like that on MSNBC because it's just too overwhelming. I'm going to play this one last cut to tell you about the claim that the White House has that they're sending most everybody back. Cut 17. Brandon Judd, he is president of the National Border, Border Patrol Council. This is exactly what they're doing. They're crossing the border illegally with the intention of being released into the United States pending a a court hearing that's years down the road. Uh, That's their intentions. That's what they're trying to accomplish. And when you look at uh, everything that we do across the border, when 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 Jen Psaki says that there is a screening process, right now under that bridge, there is absolutely no process. Uh, Those individuals, they're not even in our custody. They're free to move. They're free to go back to Mexico, cross back into the United States. Um, They're free to move laterally. As long as they don't try to make a furtherance into the United States, we won't take them into custody until we have the time and the buses there to transport them. So, no, she is completely and totally wrong, and she's misleading the American public. Which bothers me most because most people don't want a lot, 50% of the country, maybe more, want to see Joe Biden be successful, don't want to hear about a border crisis, but you don't have that luxury. It's coming to a town near you. The drugs, the people, they're going to overrun the working class schools. That's the cities they put them in. They don't put them into Beverly Hills High School. They put them into Brentwood High School on Long Island. And that's what is so wrong. Uh, and then you act like you have a big heart in Hollywood and in AOC. You think they're putting into Queens's condo uh, in her, her condo in Queens? Forget it. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. We have a lot to discuss. I don't want to go too long because I want you to be able to talk. And then we're going to go up close and personal with a man that wants to be governor of Texas, Alan West. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. A radio show of the people for the people. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. If you come to the United States illegally, you will be returned. Your journey will not succeed, and you will be endangering your life and your family's lives. This administration is committed 
to developing safe, orderly, and humane pathways for migration. But this is not the way to do it. Yeah, but the problem is you're telling us, Secretary Mayorkas, you're not telling the southern, the Central American states, you're not telling the islands nearby. You're certainly not going, taking out ads in that area, meeting with other governments on a regular basis, pressing them, using leverage against them. And Mexico right now feels totally disrespected like almost all our other allies. As imperfect as Mexico is, they were doing pretty good with President Trump. William WTRC in South Bend. Hey, William. Hey, good morning. How are you? Good. What's on your mind? Okay, so we talked about um, prices uh, of how things have been have, uh, inflated. And uh, we have, I don't know, there's about 17, 18 locally family-owned grocery stores around here that have gone up on normal pricing about 30%. So when you go to like a Walmart or whatever, the Walmart's going to be about the same cost of what the regular price was at the other store. Gas has gone up here in the Midwest um, 27% a gallon. It's absolutely just out of control. And when we talk about Biden's policies right now, these are not what I look at as disasters. They're catastrophes. He's going to do a little bait and switch, tries to take our mind off of whatever he's caused now. Next thing you know, he starts another catastrophe. And I don't even know if he knows what he's doing, going, though. William, think he's trying to start this catastrophe? I voted against Trump. Get your head out of your butt. What do you think you did? So now here we are left holding this bag of crap, if you will, that we all have to deal with. I hear you. Frustrating. Gary uh, is listening to WNDB in Daytona, Florida. Hey, Brian. Good morning. Good. What's on your mind? The, uh, my orcus is obvious. He's been appointed to a level of incompetence. I mean, uh, it's amazing. He has to read from a card at a snail's pace. That it's a challenging situation, and uh, it's important for people not to come to this country. But he has to look at a card to say those words. And I, the other comment I had to make was, I'm not a huge fan of Michael Goodwin, but that was incredible yesterday because my take on what he said, uh, and I have a lot more respect for what he said yesterday during your interview, was that he actually believes that Biden and the cabinet realize they're destroying this country. Yeah, he thinks it's on purpose. Uh, it's unbelievable. That, uh, can they be that incompetent? I actually think it's more incompetence, which is scary because they have the experience. There's certain things just experience lets you know becomes like a reflex. And they're dropping the ball with our allies. They're dropping the ball with the United Nations, even the protocol that's happening today. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. I have not yet heard from the president during this his entire presidency concerning the border. 
the Biden administration uh, refuses to even pretend as though there's a crisis. And uh, obviously, as you've been talking about tonight and as your viewers have seen for months now, there is chaos down there, especially in the Del Rio sector. That is Governor Abbott talking about the chaos at the border. Uh, he's been unable to get the president's attention on this. 28 other governors wrote a letter saying they need an immediate meeting on this. It is an emergency. It's not politics. It is American patriotism. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West joins us, Texas gubernatorial candidate, senior fellow at the Media Research Industry uh, Center, and a former congressman from Florida. Uh, Colonel, uh, what can you do to get the president's attention? Well, uh, I'm down here in Victoria, Texas. I'll be heading to McAllen, Texas, and uh, Harlingen down in the Rio Grande Valley later. How do you get the president's attention? Is that you get your forces, your National Guard forces down there on the border, and you take charge of the situation? You know, I came from the United States military, and uh, if we're in a battle, if we're in a, a tough situation, we are in the middle of a chaotic situation, you take action. One of the things they teach you early on as a young uh, military officer, if you're leading your unit and your unit gets caught in an ambush, you take an action. You don't sit there in an ambush and you get on the radio and say, "Come, someone come help me. You attack out of the ambush. And so I'm, I'm hearing Governor Abbott you know, go on the TV, and it seems to me that he's just whining and, and wanting attention from the president. But President Biden and Vice President Harris, they have exactly what they want. They instituted an open borders policy unconstitutionally by executive order. And what Governor Abbott should have done and immediately recognized is that I've got to take action. And the Constitution in Article 1, Section 10, Clause Number 3 gives the governor the ability to take action. And he should have done that. And but didn't he arrest a whole bunch of people? Is he, allowing, is he allowing the rangers and others to arrest people? Yeah, but this is arresting for trespassing. And what does that mean? You arrest people for trespassing, and you already have sheriff's departments that are stretched in, you know, local law enforcement stretched in. If anything, they get, what, three or four months in jail, and then they're further released. You need to be able to stand and say that no one is going to come into the state of Texas illegally. That's how you get folks' attention when you say that this is a constitutional crisis and Texas is going to step up. We're going to deploy our full National Guard. We're going to designate the uh, cartel as transnational narco-criminal terrorist organizations. We're going to go after their funding. We're not going to have 501c3 organizations like Catholic Charities processing illegal immigrants and ferreting them out across Texas and uh, the United States. And we're going to revoke their license to operate in the state of Texas. Very simple. That's what you do. Well, it's, uh, uh, are you saying that he is not doing that? No, he's not doing that. Again, I mean, he uh, he wrote a letter to the president to declare the, uh, this an emergency. He's telling uh, local law enforcement that uh, they can apply for a grant uh, to get money to support them instead of going down and asking what they need and giving it to them. They don't have time to to, to write grant uh, proposals to the uh, to the governor to the state of Texas. And again, going on TV and saying that you know I'm trying to get uh, President Biden's attention. No, Governor, you take action. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what the people here in Texas, the state of Texas want you to do. Uh, Colonel Allen West with us now. He's going to be running for uh, he's running right now for the Republican nomination to be the next governor of Texas. Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Maracas, Mayorkas, he was at the border yesterday. Here's what his message is. Cut seven. If you come to the United States illegally, 
you will be returned. Your journey will not succeed, and you will be endangering your life and your family's lives. This administration is committed to developing safe, orderly, and humane pathways for migration. But this is not the way to do it. And you know what? If you want to get the message out, that is not the way to do it. Don't tell us. Tell them. What do you tell the tell Haiti? Tell their tell Bolivia. Tell Venezuela. And you tell them there no one's getting in. And then you show video of people being expelled. No, you're absolutely right. I don't understand what uh, Secretary Mayorkas is talking about. I mean, he's the guy that says our border is secure and it's not wide open. Well, somehow over the past two months, we've seen approximately 420,000 have come across that border in July and August apprehended, but they haven't been deported. We have another 38 to 90,000, 38 to 39,000 per month, July and August, that are what they call getaways. And we don't even know where, where they went and where they have ended up. So we do have a crisis situation here. And you're correct. Talk to those countries. Don't talk to us. And uh, they're not seeing deportations. Now, all of a sudden, you see the Band-Aid of the second chest wound. They're putting a few people on uh, on aircraft and flying them back. But that's not really the wholesale story that is happening. Brian, what people got to understand is that when you look at what is happening at that uh, at that bridge, if you go up river or you have to go down river, you are consistently seeing people cross into the state of Texas illegally day and night. And as well, these are individuals that are uh, single military age males dressed in black, dressed in camouflage, carrying backpacks. Uh, I got a report yesterday. Eight to ten times a day, drones are carrying fentanyl from Mexico over into Texas and dropping it off. Eight to ten times a day, fentanyl is being transported by drone out of Mexico into Texas. So I want to bring you to the reconciliation bill that cradle-to-grave social spending from preschool to school lunches to free college to free elder care to expanding Obamacare and Medicare. This is all queued up along with the Green Agenda, and they're having huge problems with it. Manchin says, that doesn't work for me, So and says, wait for 2022. Cinema said, I'm only going to pass the bipartisan bill, which Republicans uh, 19 have signed on on. A lot of Republicans are upset by it. Now they want to pass both first. This is the deal for AOC and company, will not sign the 1.2 unless there's a 3.5. So they look like they're in an absolute free fall now. They wanted to jam immigration, legalizing 8 to 10 million illegal immigrants in our country. The parliamentarian said no. It has nothing to do with the criteria, which is budget-related on the uh, reconciliation label. Here's Congressman Jim Banks, Cut 29. This week alone— What the Democrats are trying to pull off with negotiating this $3.5 trillion reconciliation socialist spending package and moving it forward, along with the fake infrastructure bill on top of it totaling $5 trillion, plus the continuing resolution on top of that. Um, on top of what they want to want to provide with uh, with aid to the Taliban, taxpayer funding and for abortion. I mean, these are all uh, hot ticket items for the Democrats. And you better believe it. They're going to do everything they can to pass it, which means Pelosi will wield the power that she has to buy off as many Democrats as it takes to pass it. We can't we can't ignore the threat of what this would do to the future of our country if they pass it. And that's why we got to fight tooth and nail to stop it. Well, I mean, you can run against it, but let's see if it's going to get through. She needs GOP help, Congressman, used to be in the House, with at least 20 progressive threatening to vote against the 
1.2 bipartisan bill. Centrist members are banking on more than 10 Republicans to approve the bill. So if you are a moderate and are open and say, well, Senator Cassidy, if it's good enough for Senator Cassidy and Senator Portman and Senator Romney, it's good enough for me. I know you're an ultra-conservative and would never do that. But what do you say now? If you are Steve Scalise and you're the whip, what do you do? Do you let people vote their conscience? Do you make sure they don't? What are you doing? We don't support this incredible grab by the progressive socialists of the Democrat Party. We put Nancy Pelosi. This is the 1.2, though. This is the 1.2. Yeah, you still put them in an untenable position. Right now, we do not need to look at how the federal government spends more money. We have COVID relief money that is still out there that has not been been spent. And so I think that, again, now is the time for Republicans to stand and put the Democrats in a a tough position and situation and uh, make them own these things. And and so that's what they don't want to have happen. They want to have Republicans that are voting for something. So therefore, when it comes time, they will blame Republicans. Look at, look at what the fallback position has been on Afghanistan. It's always been Donald Trump. And so what Republicans have to stop doing is putting themselves in a the position they can be blamed. The Democrats are going to try to do everything they can to get all these big spending packages uh, through uh, b- before the November 2022 election. They know that there's a window of opportunity. They're not going to be able to do this next year because you're in an election season, an election cycle. So the Republicans need to stand together and stand strong and push back against these big spending packages. So that's what people laugh. I say, well, Nancy Pelosi brings everyone together, her party together. She gets her party. People that bring people together get both parties. This is the first time I heard Nancy Pelosi doesn't even know who these people are. She mispronounces their name all the time. Now she's going to be calling up moderate, moderate, so-called moderate Republicans saying, do me a favor? Really? As she's basically eight months from going out the door or a year? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And so why would you want to do a favor for Nancy Pelosi uh, again? Because you know that she's the exact same person. When the opportunity presents itself, she will turn around and stab them in the back. Absolutely. Congressman, uh, best of luck. If people want to help you out in your run for governor, where do they go? Sure. They go to West, the number four, Texas.com, West4Texas.com. I'll be down in McAllen tonight. I'll be in Harlingen uh, the following night, uh, all down in the Rio Grande Valley area. So God bless you, and thanks so much, Brian. Go get him, uh, Congressman, Lieutenant yes. Colonel, and maybe Governor of uh, Texas, Alan West. Thanks so much. Yes, sir. All right. Uh, listen, we come back. Your turn, one 408 There's so much more to talk about. Uh, we haven't really barely touched on uh, the border. We're also going to be talking about the Afghanistan situation. U.S. residents, you might be, they might be out of our sight, but they're not out of our minds, are hiding out in Afghanistan, on the move constantly, dressed like the, as if they're citizens there in burqas, baggy outfits, whatever it takes, hoping not to get found, convinced they will be killed. We left them there. That story, and we come back. Brian Kilmeade. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first, only on The Brian Kilmeade Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, everybody. Just a few things. I have not forgotten about Afghanistan. Many of you aren't. In fact, I was heartened by the fact that we did a uh, we did one of those polls. Said, "What are you most concerned about?" Inflation was number one. I think Afghanistan was number three. Pretty amazing. So here's why you care about it because of the way we left. 
Not that you wanted to go on forever, but the way we left and just saying basically everybody we just uh, destroyed who had been shooting at us, uh, you can have the keys back to the kingdom. Meanwhile, as U.S. residents in Afghanistan hiding out, this is going to the AP, through messages, emails, and phone conversations with loved ones and, re- and rescue groups, AP has prayed peace together. What day-to-day life has been like for some of those left behind in the U.S. military's chaotic withdrawal, that's being kind, that includes U.S. citizens, permanent U.S. residents, green card holders, and visa applicants who aided the U.S. who are not being identified. Uh, they went on to say that they keep the they keep the lights off on uh, off all the time, including at night, moving from place to place, uh, donning baggy clothing, burkas to avoid detection if they absolutely must uh, venture out. They have people that go and get them food. Uh, on a daily basis, they do not know if they're going to make it to the next day. They're trying desperately to get the message out, but they're also concerned that their signals are being their their cell phone is being uh, mined, and they're worried about being caught uh, with it. Uh, number one, uh, and of course, making that com uh, making that contact. Um, so. They also have this to deal with, measles. The CDC is recommending a 21-day waiting period after measles vaccine, uh, 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 after the measles vaccine for the Afghan flights. Evidently, the recommendation comes after the Biden administration last week temporarily paused flights with Afghan evacuees from entering the U.S. after four diagnosed cases of measles. Yeah, uh, by the way, we did eradicate measles in our country, but it doesn't seem to have done the trick when it comes to going overseas to the Middle East and then leaving that country. So when I talk about crises, you might say, well, Donald Trump uh, poisoned the well. Donald Trump left me a bad plan in Afghanistan. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, you know, ripped up the Iranian deal, got out of the Paris Accord. Okay, the Paris deal. I'm glad about all those things, by the way. Here's what Jen Psaki said about the latest unforced error from President Biden on France. Essentially, we they had a deal that they were building, and they were cutting this deal now with Australia, and they were building two nuclear subs. I think $100 billion was going to be coming into their coffers. And out of nowhere, the U.S. and U.K. got together, and they bought, the Australians did, American subs that evidently are better, better buy, provide additional protection. Not only is that kind of tough to do to an ally, but you did it without even telling them. They found out it through the media Listen to this question, not from a Fox reporter. Um, actually, this is from CBS This Morning in a conversation with Gail King. Jen Psaki, cut to. We're still getting hammered for uh, how the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan happened. Everybody knows, every, many people believe it was time. It's just the way that it was done. Mm-hmm. So we all agree <clears throat> with that. That's not a good look. You look at what's happening with immigration. You look at France now saying that uh, they've been betrayed by the United States. So I I get that we have to look forward, but what are we doing to justify or explain what appears to be very bad behavior on our part now? We don't see it that way. Uh, One, we have a long-abiding relationship, friendship, alliance with France. What we're talking about here, this is about an economic deal. We have the best nuclear sub technology in the world, and the Australians wanted our technology. Prior to that, they were buying uh, they were buying uh, this from France. We understand that they're they're displeased about that, but we have a long-abiding 
friendship with them that's going to endure. And, and we are going to rely on that long history of friendships. But I think the president is the first to say, you've got to work on relationships. We know this in our real lives as well. Yeah. Uh, and, he's, and he's here to do that too. Uh, so that when he speaks to the world today, he's going to convey alliances are the backbone of who we are. Uh, we're going to build and address these issues in the world based on those alliances, climate, uh, cyber, counterterrorism, whatever it may be. Okay, a couple of things where I don't know if she followed up and said after that diatribe, since they're a friendly interview, and said, but the t- problem is, yes, the deal. Okay. They're not going to be happy. But if you communicate and then maybe work out a compensation situation where you could buy other goods or practices or other military hardware or do something for them, a discount from us, there's deals to be done. There are relationships that need to be uh, taken care of. You did it without telling them. That's why they recalled their ambassador from the U.K. and the U.S. Now, the other thing is the U.N. is telling us, uh, saying essentially, and I'll paraphrase, our bizarre behavior as it relates to China is causing another Cold War. Wow. Now, I can't believe China prides itself on knowing America and really said they thought that President Trump was going to bomb them when he didn't even bomb Iran after they shot down our multi-billion dollar drone for no reason that was in international waters. And he turned down other opportunities to do big time uh, strikes in Syria, did two smaller strikes. Cut three. How does he plan to address the relationship with China that has been described as dysfunctional? Well, we heard the U.N. Secretary General describe it that way. We we don't agree with that assessment. The president met with him uh, last night and conveyed... Uh, You do not have to be concerned that we're trying to start a Cold War with China. That is not what the United States is going to do. And the president will address that in his speech today. But we do see the relationship through the prism of competition. It is China is a competitor, but it's not a country we want to have conflict with. So what people will hear the president talk about is where we have issues, we will raise them. But we will also look to areas where we can work together and we need to work together. So interesting. uh, She said that uh, that is the assessment of the U.N., that we are bizarre behavior to China. I don't know if I agree all together with that. General Milley hasn't certainly helped things. The other thing to keep in mind is China's changing. Chinese going after in, in feminine males, their words, and getting back to the Mao economy. I'm serious. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest minutes of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. We have a big hour coming your way, a simulcast with Barney and Company. Uh, We will also update you and recap what's going on with President Biden's first speech to the United Nations. He's talking about uh, that we're going to support climate change, as usual, and he's going to say we're not going to start a Cold War with China. I didn't think we were anyway. Uh, That's what the U.N. accuses us of doing, and we'll talk about that as well as uh, try to make sense of the way we left Afghanistan, which will prove to be impossible. Uh, But we're going to give up the big three for a great reason. Uh, One of America's, if not the... Uh, finest documentarians and historians is with us now. Uh, he has made a major impact on those who want to know about American history and and get it through uh, the lens of how it lived it. I think with the first time I saw, heard about Ken Burns, who was with the uh, the history of baseball, and then of course we have uh, then we have the Civil War, and the last one was an area in which I thought I knew more than Ken. 
and that is the life of Cassius Clay slash Muhammad Ali. He has now taken on that, uh, and he's done a remarkable job. It is a it is a four round fight. Round one was on, and uh, it's on PBS. Ken Burns joins us now. Ken, welcome back. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Brian. Uh, no problem. Ken, what made you want to tackle Muhammad Ali? Because you're not the biggest boxing guy, but you realize the impact of this man. Yeah, you know, I've done one other boxing film on Jack Johnson, the first African-American heavyweight champion in the beginning of the 20th century. I'm, I'm not that interested in boxing, except where the boxer intersects with American life. And when you think about Muhammad Ali, he intersects with all of the major themes of the last half of the 20th century. I mean, the role of sports in society, the role of the black athlete, the definitions of black masculinity and manhood, the civil rights movement, the human justice movement, our age-old question about race, politics, war, faith, religion, Islam, sex. I mean, all of the things we're also discussing today. So there's something kind of protean about this figure. He's considered the greatest athlete of the 20th century. I think a good barroom argument might be that he's the greatest athlete, period, full stop, willing to have that discussion. But I think it's the way in which his life reminds us about freedom and courage and love. I mean, he dies the most beloved person on the planet. And that ought to be ought to ought to spark some curiosity of how someone who was so reviled in the 1960s for various stands he had taken could could sort of transform into this beloved figure in which billions that's with a b uh, people were drawn to him and uh loved him I, I just watching uh, the Frazier fights and the Foreman fight and the Liston fight and what they meant in overcoming things. You might never want to be a boxer, but if you've met someone in your life that intimidates you and you win, uh, maybe Ali could show you the template how to do that. And that could have been uh, Liston, for example, who everyone was afraid to get his jab, let alone uh, feel his wrath, and he beats him. Here's David Remnick. He's one of the many uh, experts who you talk to. And in in this piece, and he talks about how Ali wasn't always loved. Cut 34. We now think of Muhammad Ali as this vulnerable guy lighting the torch in Atlanta, and everybody on the globe loves him. Black people like him, white people. He's a universal hero, like almost in a religious way, like the Buddha. But when he was in the midst of his career, and not just in the early bit, he was incredibly divisive. Boo, yell, scream, throw peanuts, but whatever you do, Pay to get in. People hated him, whether it was along racial lines, class lines, Vietnam lines, political lines, religious lines, where they just couldn't stand him. And people, of course, had the opposite. And this was, I loved him. Loved him. Uh, the author, he was the author of King of the World, Muhammad Ali and the Rise of an American Hero. Uh, David, he, he spoke up. He, he, uh, uh, Ken, uh, as Ken, David mentioned, Ken, he spoke up, he spoke out, he bragged, and he backed it up. Yeah. Well, so there's an interesting dynamic here, Brian. Um, David uses, I think, quite appropriately the phrase divisive. But I wonder if it's Ali who's divisive or us who's divisive. And, and let me just explore that for one second. I'll use a baseball metaphor. He comes up. He's bragging, as you say. He's reciting poetry. He's predicting the rounds in which his opponents are going to fall, and they usually do fall in that round. And he's not behaving the way an athlete is supposed to behave, and particularly in the early 1960s, how a black athlete is supposed to, put that in quotes, right. behaves. Right. One. 
Then he wins the championship. You know, it's a nine to one odds against him uh, to beat Liston, and he's figured Liston out, and he's just clearly brilliant, and it's an amazing fight. You know, I call all the fights the collected work of William Shakespeare because you can't make this up. The internal and internal drama of these fights are beyond imagination, and they're all the most important ones. The 25 most important ones are in the film. But after he wins the world championship, he announces that he's a member of a separatist a religious cult called the Nation of Islam, and that soon after that, they are going to change his name from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali. This is you know, incendiary in America, uh, and strike two. Then, based on religious beliefs, he refuses induction into the United States Army in Vietnam. He'd been classified as undraftable, and then because we needed more fodder, more soldiers there for that war that wasn't going well, um, he was reclassified 1A. He refused induction. He was convicted. Though the prosecutors had suggested uh, rejecting his conscientious objector argument, um, I think America saw it only in political terms, that a black man was giving a middle finger to the USA, not that it was a sincerely held religious belief. But no matter, the po- prosecutors recommend something. He's, the book is thrown out of $10,000 and five years in prison, which he appeals. But that's the strike three, because so many people, black as well as white, just thought there was a sort of ungratitude. There was something scary about the nation of Islam. And, um, you know, he, he was refusing to participate in a war, which at that time in 1966, a majority of Americans um, favored. So that's where the great animosity, he, he loses everything. He gives up everything. I mean, he knew and everyone knew that he could go into the army and he'd have a cushy job. He'd appear at USO shows and he'd do, you know, make trips. And like Joe Lewis. Going to be fun. Like Joe Lewis, but he didn't do it. He was holding to his beliefs. So I think what happens is you begin to see this rehabilitation take place in the early 70s. Finally, the Supreme Court unanimously um, frees him from this prison sentence on a technicality, not not establishing that, uh, that, that he was right about conscientious objector on a technicality. But nonetheless, he's free. And he, he, he makes a, a uh, he's already fought a couple fights. He's now going to go back and fight Frazier to get back his title. He loses and he does so spectacularly with great humility. Right. At the and, end. Which is so and, interesting. And, and, and you, you point this with, out, Ken. And I just, I'm going to well, let you, people hear it. But you say the loss turned things around in his public perception. First, let's hear it. This was one of the most fascinating fights ever. It totally ever, lived ever, up to the hype it, tonight to, in 1971. Here it is, March 8th, 1971. After the fight, Ali had been knocked down in the 15th, but got up. Cut 41. Nine to six for Frazier. Frazier is the winner. Eleven rounds for Frazier, for Rowley, Rowley, Levin and Fowler, the winner by unanimous decision, and champion of the world, Joe Frazier. So, what changed after the loss? So, I think, you know, and let's just be honest, too. This film is very... Uh, clear that Muhammad Ali, an outsized personality with great strength, like an ancient Greek hero, uh, also has weaknesses. Achilles had his heel and his hubris to go along with his great strength. Before the fight, which was called the fight of the century, he had used the language of a, that a white racist would use to describe a black man 
about his black opponent, Joe Frazier, who is completely unacceptable. As the scholar Todd Boyd says, you know, in this case, here's the ultimate conscious black guy, but he's using his powers for evil instead of good. And I think one way of understanding it is implied there is that there's a kind of superhero nature to Muhammad Ali. Anyway, he knows he's behind on points. The last round, he's trying desperately to get a knock out of Frazier and instead you know he he he's vulnerable because of that desperation and Frazier knocks him down he's immediately up the decision as you heard is unanimous for Frazier he's remaining the heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali afterwards is soft spoken he says into every life failure must come i have to be an example people lose their lives they lose loved ones they lose titles and we have to go forward it's an amazing thing but america by March of 71, has looking at him in, 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 with different eyes. They're beginning to think, you know, maybe he's right. All the combat troops are coming out of Vietnam. It's been a mistake um, that he, he was right about Vietnam. And more importantly, he had held to his conscience and he was trying to come back. And so as Robert Lipsight said, Frazier, uh, one of the great sports writers and who was a cub reporter and followed Cassius Clay and then Muhammad Ali all through his career, he says, he was um, essentially – Frazier won the fight, but Ali won America, and that's when kids, black and white, began putting his poster up. And then it's only three years before he has – he wins back the championship in spectacular fashion in another Liston-like situation where people in his corner are worried he's going to be killed by his opponent in Kinshasa Zaire, George Foreman. Instead, like the Liston fight, it's just – by that time – the rehabilitation has has um, I'm not saying is complete. I think it was probably complete by the time he was lighting the torch in Atlanta 25 years right. ago this summer. His hand shaking from the effects of the Parkinson's that all the blows to the head probably provoked. It was a inherited family trait, and and we do know that Parkinson's does get handed down, but maybe those blows provoked it. And he's silenced and, and sort of encased by it. And now he's this beloved figure. Michael J. Fox, the great actor who has Parkinson's, said an amazing thing, Brian. He said, I couldn't be still until I couldn't be still. This loud, voluble, funny, great man who spoke all the time, whenever he spoke, right. um, you know, the sports world stopped, now couldn't speak and in some ways spoke volumes and became right. an ambassador for the U.S. around the, the world and died, as I said, the most beloved person. And so he spoke volumes even in his silence. Right. It's just one of the great stories that I've ever come across. And by the way, this film is co-directed by my daughter, Sarah Burns, and her husband, David McMahon. We collaborated on the Central Park Five film and the Jackie Robinson film several years ago. Yeah, Ken, it just goes so beyond boxing, and, and uh, yeah. it is fantastic. So, Ken, you're kind enough to do two segments, so we'll take a short time out, come back, and let you finish up. But keep in mind, Muhammad Ali is airing now on PBS. Uh, you can download it or, or watch it on your local affiliate. It is so worth the watch. Back in a moment. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. 
never again make me the underdog until I'm about 50 years old. But I didn't dance. I didn't dance for a reason. I wanted to make him lose all his power. I kept telling him he had no punch. He couldn't hit. He's swinging like a sissy. He's missing. Let me see your box. I hadn't started dancing yet. You can't say my legs are gone. You can't say I was tired because what happened? I didn't dance from the second round on. I stayed on the ropes. When I stay on the ropes, you think I'm doing bad. But I want all boxers to put this in the page of boxers. Staying on the ropes is a beautiful thing with a heavyweight when you make him shoot his best shots and you know he's not hitting you. I would have gave George Solomon two rounds instead of punching because after that he was mine. And that's the rope-a-dope strategy, which is now part of American vernacular. Uh, we got a couple more minutes with Ken Burns. Ken, that moment, just like the Liston moment, but they really said he lost to Frazier, got his jaw broken by Norton, Foreman crushed both those guys inside of two rounds. How could Ali survive? How did he do it? Can you make sense of it? Yeah, he used his head, his heart, his spirit, his faith, all of those things. He he understood the internal dynamics of what was going to win, and he applied that. I mean, his own corner is screaming at him, Angelo Dundee, get off the ropes, get off the ropes the entire time. But he had a strategy, and he basically let George, who one punch connecting, would that would be it, like Sonny Liston. I mean, it's just one of those great fights. As I said, it's Shakespearean in its internal drama and its external drama there in Zaire and Kinshasa, you know, supported by this dictator, you know, Mobuto Sese Seiko. It's just you can't make this stuff up. And it is really the high point of everything. He regains the title. He is, as Howard Bryant says in the film, whole again. And it reminds you, you know, I've been making films, Brian, about the U.S. for nearly 50 years. But I've also been making films about us. That is to say, the two-letter, lowercase, plural pronoun, all of the intimacy of us and all of the majesty, all of the complexity, all of the contradiction, even all of the controversy of the U.S. It's a marvelous. I feel privileged to sort of exist in that space. And what I learned when I was working on our country music documentary is that there's only us. There's no them. And we spend way too much of our energy creating them. It's a kind of out of political expedience. But as they say, in war, the first casualty is the truth. In political expediency, the first casualty is the truth. And what you can find embedded in the life of Muhammad Ali is someone who emerges phoenix-like from the trials that he was put through, from losing three and a half years at the height of his career to rise once again, not once, but twice to the heavyweight championship and do it uh, in a, in a, with the, engaging the themes of freedom. It's tough for a black man to achieve, you know, escape the specific gravity of what this country can sometimes do. It's about courage, not just in the ring, as he exhibited in Zaire there, but also uh, in life. Uh, and it's about love. I mean, this is, this is a guy who understood it. There's a wonderful shot of the Beatles visiting the Fifth Street gym while he's training for Liston. And there's a fake publicity shot, you know, of him hitting George. And George is, hit, you know, is toppling down like dominoes, Ringo, John, and Paul. And I realized, my goodness, there are five men who understood what the mechanics are of the universe. That is to say that only love multiplies. And, you know, it's probably best said by one of the two survivors, Paul McCartney, who said, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. This is what Muhammad Ali was about. And those last three decades, imprisoned as it seems to us, um, in, in the ravages of Parkinson's, nonetheless, 
just became this huge figure. His daughter, Rashida, in the last episode, squeezes her fingers together and said, boxing was only this much. Meaning, you know, he could have done anything else. He could have been a carpenter. You never know what he would have done. We, you can see from the early footage of him, and you can see him say this as a young man. I don't have to box. I know I'm destined for something. And I think in some ways he was, as so many people in our history, as you know, Brian, particularly having studied recently Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, some people are messengers of us, not them, of us, and therefore they're messengers of the U.S. And I am so proud that Muhammad Ali is one of us. He's well, an American. I, I wish I could have added to those statements, but it was just so perfect. That's why you do what you do. Ken Burns, how do we get this? You can, you, you know, it's on PBS. Uh, episode three is tonight and episode four tomorrow night broadcast. But it's been available since Sunday for free at pbs.org slash Ali. So you can go back and catch up if you haven't seen it. You can look at your right. leisure. Uh, we're now in no longer appointment Ken, TV. But- Ken Burns, thanks so much. Radio that makes you think. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. The bitter sting of terrorism is, is real. We've almost all experienced it. Last month, we lost 13 American heroes and almost 200 innocent Afghan civilians in a heinous terrorist attack at the Kabul airport. Those who commit acts of terrorism against us will continue to find a determined enemy in the United States. The world today is not the world of 2001, though. And the United States is not the same country we were when we were attacked on 9-11 20 years ago. Today... We're better equipped to detect and prevent terrorist threats, and we are more resilient in our ability to repel them and to respond. We know how to build effective partnerships to dismantle terrorist networks by targeting their financing and support systems, countering their propaganda, preventing their travel, as well as disrupting imminent attacks. All right, that is uh, the inspiring speech of uh, President Biden. He looks like he got some sleep last night. It sounds clearer than most that we've been watching in the East Room of the Oval Office or wherever he decides to do it, or the press office. Uh, he just gave a speech. Uh, they're going to go together. You just heard that was one of the themes. The other one is uh, they were going to lead on climate change, and that's the first time in 20 years we're not at war. Okay, uh, that's interesting. But look at the pay- price we pay to end that war. And by the way, it is not over. We just strengthened our enemy. And so I hope people are smart enough to understand that the way we left Afghanistan he deserves zero credit, only discredit. Now a, a book that comes out by Bob Woodward done before this was the failure that it was that shows the Secretary of Defense. Well, you know what? I'll let you hear it. Just so you know, Bob Woodward, who spends most of the book ripping Donald Trump's last months in office, a couple of months in office, does have time to go over some of the Biden campaign and the early Biden presidency, cut six. A lot of reporting we did on Afghanistan and the the pullout that Biden was insisting that, you know, we got to get out now. And it turns out in March of this year, Biden's top cabinet officers, Tony Blinken, the secretary of state, Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, propose formally in all of these discussions of slow down the process. Austin particularly says, 
negate the withdrawal. A few here, a few now, don't do it, and one sweep. And you now look back at that, and that probably was good advice that was not taken. Probably was good advice that wasn't taken. Much different from the activist Bob Woodward, who just thought uh, Donald Trump was unworthy for the office. Which, if you look at this decision, by the way, there's an interesting poll out today that talked about the president and President Trump and President uh, and President Biden's approval and image. And the poll, I could not believe it. I had to look at it twice. Statistically, Biden and Trump are tied, according to this poll uh, on the Hill. Uh, on their homepage, 48% of respondents say they have a positive view of Trump compared to 46% who say they have a favorable opinion of Biden. 49% of those surveyed said they have an unfavorable view on the current president, while slightly less, 47%, have an unfavorable view of Trump. After January 6th, after the two impeachments, after the way the president uh, protested the vote, he still... Stunningly to me, I like to see this replicated in other ones to make sure this is an aberration. Stunningly to me, we are seeing that President Biden's policies are so bad, his speeches are so ridiculous, the content of what he says is so uh, inauthentic, no one's buying it. And even the pandemic, where he's got 53% approval on, that's dropping like a stone because when you tell the American people, I'm going to put my to put your two year old in a mask when you say, show me your vaccine card or drop out of the Navy SEALs. When you show some of your vaccine card or uh, if you have more than 100 employees, make everyone get a vaccine or put give them your company's going to get a big fine. Even if you're pro vaccine. That's not how you do it. You know what? Your president forcing some medicine down your throat. It doesn't feel right for a reason. It is not right, which you should say. And his messaging should be. This technology, this mRNA technology, it's not that new. In fact, let me give you an example of how it's working and what it could be doing. Uh, it was explained to me in great detail how mRNA might be the key to stopping not your cancer, not my cancer, but everyone's individual designer cancer. It's a, it's a potential designer drug. And this is what it does. And this is why you might need a booster, because of the science behind it. And you explain it in a very simple way that someone like me was always terrible in science and biology. I picked it up, no problem. And then what I did is I went and talked to the many doctors that are here, my own doctor, and I say, listen, what do you think about this? I even talk, mentioned to vets because vets go to extensive medical school and they know all about it. And they, they'll tell me about it. So I, I felt fine with it. I was fine with the Johnson & Johnson, which is the more traditional and there was another one they were working on that I think is going to be rolling out shortly, which is also traditional where they shoot the dead virus into you like they do the flu and other things and get your body. They might have a slight fever. You get your body used to it. It builds up antibodies. And that's the thing that we've been doing for over 100 years. But what President Biden has done is done the opposite. He said, take it, you selfish bum, and uses other words. My patience is running thin. Really, with the American people? Sorry to bother you. Nobody asked you to stay in your basement and beg for this job. And pick the worst vice president who is so unprepared and uninterested in the job. She never even shows up for work, shows up for a coin flip instead of the border with 16,000 people from Haiti under a bridge at the southern border where you said you're handling the root causes. Oh, you must have missed the Haitian exited, exits, exodus from Brazil and Chile. That's what happens when you don't do your job at all. And during another crisis like the leaving of Afghanistan, you find yourself... I believe in Malaysia. Interesting choice there, isn't it?
So at the U.N. in the big picture, President Biden was using the address to tell everybody we're not trying to start another Cold War with China. The president's decision on Afghanistan, he was going to try to make sense of it. It's impossible. But he did, in fact, try and brag that we're out of all wars. And the bottom line is, too, from the U.K. to France to the U.N. and, of course, China, who wants to make their country, according to the Wall Street Journal, more like Mao's China. Fantastic. A socialist, more socialist communist with almost no private I mean fantastic. Almost no private industry, no entrepreneurship, no free market principles that actually they said the number works. A hundred million people got pulled out of poverty because they opened up to a degree a free market economy in their country. And President Xi is winding all that back. So this is what we're looking at right now. Our main rival China can't figure us out, but is building up because they can't. And we have a situation where we can't control a border. We can't control the infighting. Marco Rubio put it best about what Joe Biden's looking at and what he has since caused. Cut one. Joe Biden was elected on the promise that he was going to return normalcy, competency to the American government. That's what he argued and said as if there was an absence of it. And what you see now is a cascade of calamities and disasters. And they were all created by him and by actions he took. You can't go around for months sort of arguing that there's not going to be any border security and creating the perception and the reality that people can enter the country and they're going to get to stay and not expect for thousands of people to come. Remember, these were the guys that were saying, we're not going to politicize COVID, we're not going to politicize the vaccine and the science. Those pronouncements out of the White House about an additional booster shot was a political statement. So on issue after issue, it's a broken promise and incompetence and in the country. It's not even ideological anymore. It's incompetence and, and, and a lack of leadership. And the country is beginning to pay a tremendous price for it. Absolutely. And Rubio knows foreign policy especially. And he knows what's happening in Central and South America. That's really his portfolio. And in Venezuela, it didn't work out. Very disappointed. Bolton and Rubio were unable to produce something there. No idea what's happening, but our sanctions made things worse for the Venezuelan people, and the communist regime is still in place because we did not pressure Iran, Cuba, and Russia. So if you ask the American people what they care about, according to a Fox News poll, number one, 82% put inflation and prices first. 74% put the coronavirus Second, 73% said Afghanistan worries them most. 72% say unemployment worries them most. 70% said attacks from Islamic terror. And 70% said attacks from non-Islamic, I guess uh, that's uh, Democrats, and 63% say climate change. Good. So if you ask the people of California, as we know, as blue as it can get, with the highest gas prices in the country, we actually asked them about how they're handling it, paying four, uh, as much as six seventy-five for gas, cut four. Why is it so expensive? Well, it's insane, right? $6.75? I think it's crazy. It, uh, it's terrible. It's, uh, it's not necessary. I'm retired myself, so I live on a fixed income, so these things matter to me and my generation group, you know? Um, I worked hard, like everybody else in my situation did, to be able to retire. But if prices keep escalating like it is, it's it's going to make it very difficult for everybody in California and in the country as well. Our volume is very low. We have to pay for a $35,000 load in 10 days. And if we're paying $4 a gallon for gas, if it's not marked up, we're not going to be able to pay for that. So that's where the gas station showing at the end. Get oil and gas is up because our oil and gas production is down. We're once again looking for the Saudis to pick up the pace. But for the most part, with all the taxes and the burdens and the fines and the obstacles put in front of oil and gas, 
That's affecting every American. They think we're plugging everything in. We're not. They think we're going to convert all our power stations to coal. That's not even done. So if you want to hurt the American people, inflation, don't attack it. Keep prices up. Say you want to go green. That hurts Americans every single day, no matter how big or small your car is or how big or small your income is. Back with Barney and Company in just a moment. Simulcast coming your way. Now, the Brian Kilmeade Show joins Fox Business's Varney and Company with Stuart Varney, live on your radio and on Fox Business. Here's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back. I'll be on the FBN in just a moment. We're looking back at that speech that the president just gave at the United Nations, his first address. He's been chairman of foreign policy before. He's been in the audience. Blinken and John Kerry were there. John Kerry just got humiliated in China, showed up there for a climate meeting with his counterpart. And basically was sat in a hotel and did a Zoom with somebody. Uh, meanwhile, Afga, the Taliban got a one-on-one with President Xi. So let's listen in. That means Brian Kilmeade joins us. All right, Brian, straight at it. More than 20,000 Haitians are in Colombia. They may soon try to reach the United States. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says migrants don't need the jab because they're only here temporarily. Brian, what a mess. What a mess. And what, I, what I'm most heartened by is they can't escape this one. Thanks to our great drone team the follow, and their resiliency with getting the helicopter in the air when they got grounded and then boats on, to be able to see it, they cannot escape it. And Americans are horrified by it. And that, nothing against uh, ch- anyone from Chile or Bolivia or Brazil, but the Haitians, by the way, I was fascinated to find out that they got the go sign somehow through social media that if you come to our border, you'll get in. I don't know. That might be the actually first accurate information we got from Facebook since the early 80s when it got created after MySpace. Because that's exactly the case. And does anyone yeah. think that illegal immigrants stay here for a short time? Isn't that why we have DACA? Their parents came, they stayed, then they had kids and declared roots and that this is their country. And their kids say that uh, they belong because they came here at such a young age. Nobody believes it. No one buys it. Everyone's horrified by it. 16,000 under a bridge. That would be bad, uh, uh, Stuart. But it, just think about it. That's a small window. We just had... Uh, Tom Holman on Fox and Friends today, and he said he saw the schematic about where the security is. There's 240 miles, just breezeway, no uh, Border Patrol agents, no fence, no electronics, 240 miles in a pandemic when you have Title 42 and you had remained in Mexico. But the Mexicans have a different view on this. They said to themselves, he just mocked us for saying we violated international law by doing a deal with Trump. Uh, he never even called to say we need Marines on the southern border. I won't put them there. He never once tried to talk to us about the surge at our border, our northern border, on our southern border. Forget it. So we have no cooperation with our southernmost neighbor, another ally alienated, as just like we did with France and just like we just dissed the U.K., They were telling people today, yesterday, that the U.S. is not going to allow any visitors yet vaccinated or unvaccinated for a while. And they said, really? Because they just announced it a couple of hours ago. We're allowing vaccinated. Mm. I didn't know. Boris Johnson's going to come meet today. Do you think somebody can pick up the phone, text somebody, and let people know what is coming down the pike? There are allies. We're not asking them to call the Taliban. This administration is incompetent in the worst possible way, and we're all going to pay the price for it. Brian, I'm just going to change the subject for a second. I'm going to bring it back to New York City just for a moment. I'm going to show you a video. You've probably seen it already. 
This is tourists assaulting a restaurant hotel, a hostess in New York City. Why? Because the hostess asked the tourists for proof of vaccination. That's what happens when you've got a mandate in the city. And then we had the owner of Bobby Van Steakhouses. He told me yesterday on this program he'd lost $1.8 million worth of business because of the city's vaccine mandate. Brian, it seems to me that the mandate is actually doing more harm than good. What say you? Yeah, Mr. Come Together, uh, let's get a, a vaccine mandate. The restaurants who were tortured because they thought it would be a great idea to empty them out during the pandemic, they lost their staff and was tired to hire them back. Oh, the supplemental insurance said, we're learning more. Sorry, boss, I'm learning more not working than working. Now that we're up and running, the distancing makes it possible to make a profit. So we're back in there, indoors, and now they're saying show me proof of vaccination. And if they don't have it, in comes this new governor who seems to be more more oppressive than the old one who wants to put toddlers, two- and three-year-olds, in masks at preschool. And now they're going to start checking up and asking random people, maybe the Varney table of four, hey, you guys all have uh, vac- vaccination cards? Oh, you don't? Then you shouldn't be here, and the owner is now fined. And when the hostess or host, that's Carmine's, by the way, a great place. There's multiple outlets. It's yep. a legendary place. Yep. Now they're being protested by Black Lives Matter as if it was discrimination to ask for a vaccination card. It's our idiot mayor's policy that did that. He implements it, keeps people like the president of Brazil on the street eating a sandwich because the president of Brazil is a threat to other restaurant uh, uh, restaurant uh, customers. This is just an, it's an embarrassing time to be in New York. Yes, it is. Not a good place to come back to either. Brian, thanks very much indeed. Good stuff, man. See yeah. you later. Thanks, Stuart. one 7669 I'll get to your calls in just a second. And this is unbelievable. This uh, Governor Hochul, what a mess she is. Doesn't know what the heck she's doing. Seems to me more to the left than the others. Already running for re-election. One of the people she, the guys that she picked, uh, I believe, as as the... Uh, lieutenant governor, is pro-defunding the police. Eric Adams, to his immense credit, is the, well, he's the presumptive next mayor uh, because the Republican really has no shot uh, as much as Curtis Lewa is a great guy with great experience who loves the city. He doesn't seem to have the campaign apparatus around him along with the B.C. being so, uh, so Democratic. But you have a situation where a... Very Democratic Eric Adams comes out and says, I am against defunding, I'm against taxing the rich, and I'm against defunding the police. Listen. I think AOC and I believe I, uh, we both want the same things. We just have different pathways to get there. But when you talk about just blanketly saying tax the rich, in this city, we, have, we may have 8.8 million people, but 65,000 pay 51% of our income taxes. And if you say to those 65,000 to leave, then we're not going to have the firefighter, the teacher, all of those basic things. No, let's find a way to use the tax dollars. We're wasting tax dollars. Yeah, so smart. BrianKillMe.com is the place to see me live on stage. Charleston, West Virginia, November 7th. Punta Vedra, Florida, December 3rd. Clearwater, Florida, December 4th. Orlando, Florida, November 21st. BrianKillMe.com. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. 
Brian Kilmeade. Thanks Kill so much me. for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, one 7669 The bottom of the hour, one of the nation's finest uh, historians, Nathaniel uh, Philbrook, will be with us. He's got a brand-new book, Travels with George in Search of Washington and His Legacy. He goes and outlines his path, the places he visited and wrote about and talked about. And Trey Yinks will be with us shortly. Uh, he is uh, in 15 minutes. He is over in Afghanistan. He's going to bring us the latest. Taliban held Afghanistan. Nice. The President of the United States just spoke at the United Nations. We'll bring you some of those highlights. As far as I could tell, there was no big news. He didn't even mention the word China. Uh, but he does not stick around and try to foster any relationships. Trump sat there and held court for two days. He would enemies and allies know I'm around. Talk to me. But I don't think this president's got many allies right now after Afghanistan and now even France after what happened in Australia. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. We don't need the fun police to come in and try and micromanage and tell us what we should or shouldn't be doing. My drink was sitting at the table. I got up and started dancing because I was feeling the spirit. And I wasn't thinking about a mask. Exactly. The one thing President Biden always says in his speeches is wear a mask. Unless you're really feeling it. Uh, If you're really feeling it, don't wear a mask and just dance, dance, dance. That is Mayor London Breed of San Francisco. Believe it or not, a Democrat and militant when it comes to wearing a mask. Unless she's feeling the music and decides she can dance maskless while New York toddlers can't can't go to preschool without a mask or they'll be told to go home, maybe without parents. Vaccine demand gets one New York restaurant hostess pummeled. Uh, And a military mandate uh, has men and women in uniform, including Navy SEALs, deciding they'd rather call it quits than get a vaccination. Thanks for bringing us together, Mr. President. Number two. How about the message from our vice president? Where is she? She was supposed to be in charge of all of these migration issues, going to those northern triangle countries. That's obviously not Haiti. That was one of her first international trips with the message, do not come here illegally. People aren't listening. No kidding. MSNBC, no one listens to you guys, but it is pretty noteworthy that you're criticizing the president's vice president, kind of the president, too. That's Stephanie Rule. Can't ignore it anymore. The border crisis is beyond border agent patrol. Even friendly news outlets can't help but notice this. The latest on the ongoing illegal immigrant and human trafficking catastrophe unfolding now in Texas. Number one. We're still getting hammered for how the withdrawal from Afghanistan happened. Many people believe it was time. It's just the way that it was done. You look at what's happening with immigration. You look at France now saying that uh, they've been betrayed by the United States. What are we doing to justify or explain what appears to be very bad behavior on our part now? We don't see it that way. (laughs) Uh, The crisis central. President Biden is looking for a better week. First stop, the U.N., he just had it. Then he tries to get back to build back better. The problem is he can't get his own party in line. The Afghanistan pullout, we still have left a lot of people behind. I talked to Scott Mann trying to get people out of Operation Pineapple uh, a couple hours ago. He's ignoring the border crisis. Uh, Inflation stays. Infuriated allies grow. And he does not persuade moderates to compromise. He kills innocents with a drone strike. Doesn't really apologize. And the booster bungle. He told us we're all getting boosters. And the FDA said, I never said that. In fact, we're voting against it. Embarrassing to the big degree. 
I'm not going to take too much time away from Trey Yanks, but I do want to give you an idea what the president said because I think it de- uh, should be examined. I'm on the air at the same time talking to Ken Burns. Hard to listen to both at the same time. We're able to pull some excerpts. Let's listen. Whenever possible, in partnership with our allies, U- U.S. military power must be our tool of last resort, not our first it should not be used as an answer to every problem we see around the world. The Security Council adopted a resolution outlining how we'll support the people of Afghanistan moving forward, laying out the expectations to which we'll hold the Taliban when it comes to respecting universal human rights. Yeah, there you go. Here's a, uh, a couple of things. Uh, we are going to hear about the president pulling us out of wars for the first time in 20 years. But the way we did it has alienated every ally. How is that even possible? Let's listen to more. The extreme weather events that we have seen in every part of the world, and you all know it and feel it, represent what the Secretary General has rightly called code red for humanity. And the scientists and experts are telling us that we're fast approaching a point of no return in a literal sense. There's so much more debate on that and the way we're going to turn tail and run back to the Paris Accord that's going to cost us zillions while Russia and China already not living up to the agreement they signed on to. This is such a joke, and I find it scary, especially with with John Kerry in charge. The major story, I think, in this country right now is the chaos that's taking place, and it's all preventable. If you read uh, how the AP's covering it, they have a different way of talking about his miscues. In fact— they go out of it their way uh, to say Jonathan Lemaire, who, by the way, works at the AP, he calls, he sees there's a problem, but he sees a different way to blame. He says this in a tweet. The Pentagon admitted its air and drone strike. Boosters did not get full approval. France recalled this ambassador. The, punish, uh, the punishing headlines all within an hour underscore the perils for a president from uncontrollable events that can define a term What's not controllable in that? You didn't call France ahead of time. You pulled out of Afghanistan, the drone strike, that nobody, they, the Pompeo speculation is you pressured the defense to act. We don't know who's responsible, what intelligence we used. It's all preventable. And a new poll by the Hill. Trump and Biden statistically tied in favorability. Trump has 48, 48% of respondents say they have a positive view of Donald Trump. 46% have a positive, positive view of Joe Biden. 49% of those surveyed say they have an unfavorable view. Just wait till you see the Americans stuck in Afghanistan. We are seeing for sure and hearing for sure that the struggle still goes on with almost no cooperation from state or the White House. Just defense. Inexcusable. Unacceptable. The big picture, Biden addresses the U.N. at a time in which the U.N. just accuses us of trying to get a Cold War going with China because of our policies. Wow, thanks for that. President's decision on Afghanistan's withdrawal and a clear lack of transparency, loyalty uh, is pretty big. Listen to this. According to the EU Council President, Charles Michel, he told reporters on Monday, a clear lack of transparency with the Americans and loyalty, loyalty, loyalty. I'm not putting in question his this alliance, Michelle said, but I'm asking, is there a doubt in the United States about the importance of the alliance with Europe? Because they really don't know. 
It brings us to this question that Gail King asked Jen Psaki, normally a very safe space for Jen Psaki. Cut to. We're still getting hammered for uh, how the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan happened. Everybody knows, every, many people believe it was time. It's just the way that it was done. Mm-hmm. So we all agree <clears throat> with that. That's not a good look. You look at what's happening with immigration. You look at France now saying that uh, they've been betrayed by the United States. So I, I get that we have to look forward, but what are we doing to justify or explain what appears to be very bad behavior on our part now? We don't see it that way. Uh, One, we have a long-abiding relationship, friendship, alliance with France. What we're talking about here, this is about an economic deal. We have the best nuclear sub-technology in the world, and the Australians wanted our technology. Prior to that, they were buying buying, uh, this from France. We understand that. They're they're displeased about that. But we have a long-abiding friendship with them that's going to endure and and we are going to rely on that long history of friendships but i think the president is the first to say you've got to work on relationships we know this in our real lives as well yeah. uh, and he's and he's here to do that too uh, so that when he speaks to the world today he's going to convey alliances are the backbone of who we are uh, we're going to build and address these issues in the world based on those alliances climate uh, cyber all right i can't even hear it anymore uh, the, 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 this is the follow-up question but why did you not even give them a heads up that this was happening? And when she comes back and says, we did, say, well, according to the president, Macron, you didn't. So who's telling the truth? And if not, why does he feel so disrespected to say what he's saying? And if you I love the fact that, well, well I, I don't if it was a friend of mine and I had a better product and it was a friend, I wouldn't jump in there. But. Maybe there could be something in conjunction with. Maybe we sell one submarine, not two. You don't want them to lose $100 billion on a project they're working for for three years. I don't know the details. I've never been on a nuclear sub, but I know the value, and I know the value that Australia needs something to repel a belligerent China. I get that, but you need allies, especially when it comes to the economy. You want Europe to get in step. You want to reconfigure our trade relationship with Europe and even the playing field so they buy more of our cars. We remember all this. And if you say that the Trump way of using leverage alienates, what are you using? It's amazing what's happening. So just real quick on the border. Uh, yeah, you know what? All right. Uh, let me take a time out. Troy Yingst is getting ready over in Afghanistan. He's going to be joining us too. Uh, and then we're going to, at the bottom of the arrow, go to Nathaniel Philbrick. Uh, He is one of America's finest historians. He'll be sharing his stories uh, of Washington. Walk in his footsteps in just a moment. Brian Kilmeade Show. It's Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news. Unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. It's Brian Kilmeade. We're at the bottom of the hour. Nathaniel Philbrook has got a, a, a great book out. It's called uh, Travels with George in Search of Washington and His Legacy, How He Applies Today. He does a great job tying the two together. Real quick, uh, we're looking to catch up with Trey, Trey Yanks, but this whole thing about the Taliban being in control makes it a little bit more challenging. But it doesn't mean there's not news coming out. I spoke to Scott Mann, former uh, Green Beret, uh, Navy SEAL, I should say, who... 
uh, put together a re- bunch of retired guys and gals, and they're trying to, from a third country, pull people out of Afghanistan. Since flight, getting a flight out is almost impossible, the Taliban are, are putting maybe 20, 30 people on a flight, but there's many more, many more than 100 uh, on the ground there. And he is working hard, along with a couple of other groups, to do it. But he went out and talked to Millie, and Millie is doing some work. So far, there's a big story in the AP today. Through messages, emails, and phone conversations with loved ones and rescue groups, the AP has pieced together what day-to-day life was like for some of those left behind the lines uh, through the, the chaos of our exit. That includes U.S. citizens, green card holders, Visa applicants who aided U.S. troops during the 20-year war, those contacted by the AP who were not identified by their own safety, described a fearful, furtive uh, uh, existence of hiding in places, fugitive-like existence of hiding in houses for weeks, keeping the lights off at night and day, moving from place to uh, place, to place and dogging, uh, uh, donning uh, baggy clothing uh, and burkas to avoid any detection. Meanwhile, they got a missiles outbreak that slowed everything else down, so they got to, can't bring uh, measles to, to other countries. Just a challenging, a challenging, challenging uh, situation on the ground. So when we get Trey, we'll bring you Trey, one 408 Now, when it comes to what's happening in Afghanistan, there's a lot of people weighing in over the last two weeks, but nobody can really say that, Donald, that Joe Biden wasn't told ahead of time how problematic this be. Big story Bob Woodward has out. It says Mark Milley and Secretary Austin and Secretary of State Blinken all told President uh, Biden, don't leave all at once. Too late. Trey Yanks joins us now from Kabul. Trey, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. What's day-to-day life like for you as a reporter? Do you feel secure? Uh, look. Brian, right now the situation is really tense. Over the past several days, there's been a number of ISIS bombing attacks. They're mostly targeting the Taliban in the eastern city of Jalalabad. But there are ISIS fighters that are roaming the Afghan capital of Kabul right now, where we are reporting from. So the biggest threat right now I'd say we face is ISIS, actually. ISIS-K, the same group responsible for the terrorist attack against the U.S. service members at the end of August. Uh, you do have other threats from other extremist organizations, including al-Qaeda, that are operating throughout the region. Uh, but I would say that's the, the big focus right now. Look, the, the city of Kabul is still bustling. There's traffic. There are, there are people in the streets, and they are going about daily life. But their lives are no longer, I would say, moderate. I, they're very much under the rule of the Taliban, and, and the focus of this group has been on implementing their version of Sharia law. And it is not uh, traditional Sharia law. It is a a specific implementation based on tribal traditions. So it's far more extreme than other Muslim countries around the world. And that is the reality that the Afghan people now face with the Taliban in control. Right. So, so for example, how do you get information to find out what's next, their announcements, uh, secretaries, cabinet secretaries, whatever, however they decide to do it? Yeah, so it's interesting here because... The way that sources would work traditionally in basically any country around the world, you'd spend a a decent amount of time on the ground with the government and you'd be able to talk to officials behind the scenes and uh, meet them for coffee a few weeks, uh, a few months even to develop these relationships. But the Taliban just took power in Afghanistan. It's been just over a month since the Taliban took control of the country and announced their victory. So everything is very fresh and new here in Kabul and across Afghanistan. 
So day to day, it's quite interesting because there's no structure to anything. If you want access to a story, I'll give you an example of, of something we shot this week. We went with the Taliban into Kabul's international airport and filmed some of the American and Afghan equipment left behind when U.S. forces fled Afghanistan following the, the withdrawal. And basically, the way to get into the airport was not clear. It's not like you show up to a place and apply for a permit and get permission. We talked to someone who called someone who told us to show up to a location, and then we ended up inside a meeting in a very dark room with security cameras and the feeds of those cameras for the entire airport. And then after that happened, we met with one of the directors of the airport, and he said, why don't you come outside with my men? And there were gunmen around him basically wanting to go through a dog and, and pony show to, to show us the airport and the accomplishments of the Taliban. And you have to really just be very clear with the group that we are not here to be your spokespeople. We're here to hold you accountable and show the world what's happening. And while that does create some tension in those conversations, ultimately what it led to was a report that allowed us to get into the hangars where we saw these Afghan and American Blackhawks that were left behind and destroyed. And we got to, to report on that and, and show that to our viewers. So it's, it's very unique day to day, but it's, it's very unpredictable. Do you know uh, what happened to the Uzbek uh, pilots that flew those uh, airplanes out into Uzbekistan, these Afghan pilots that got out before the Taliban took over? Yeah, so that's it, a really interesting angle on the story, actually. Early on, we saw those reports of pilots fleeing Afghanistan with some of that critical equipment. And while some were able to get out, we actually found out something really interesting from the Taliban that we included in our report, some fresh reporting. And this really just breaking today. We're the only uh, team that has this. Fox can exclusively report this. According to the Taliban, some of the pilots that actually left Kabul with aircraft, including helicopters, landed in other provincial capitals in Afghanistan. And then once the Taliban took over, they came back to Kabul with that equipment. And that's really interesting. It's an interesting development because we know that pilots, specifically helicopter and, and right. uh, plane pilots, are targeted by the Taliban. So clearly some of these pilots cut a deal and said, hey, we've we'll got your back. aircraft. We'll come back and fly them for Trey, you. Yeah, have but a hard you've got to make sure we're safe. Trey, thanks so much, man. Appreciate what you're doing. Great courage. We really appreciate the angle and the real news. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, <laughs> welcome back, everybody. Uh, instead of focusing on today and tomorrow and yesterday when it comes to news, what about where it all started? How about our first president and our commanding general? Nathaniel Philbrick did just that. National Book Award winner and New York Times bestselling author. has got a brand new book out, Travels with George, in search of Washington and his legacy by going into his footsteps, the best that he can reconstruct and new instinctively from his own personal research. Uh, Nathaniel, welcome back. Hey, it's great to be back with you, Brian. Look, I love this concept. You decided to, the best you can, uh, reassemble Washington's journeys. Why? Right. Well, you know, I had finished my third book about the American Revolution. 
and I was done with war and bloodshed, but I just had to find out what happened to Washington next. And I was kind of sick of hanging out in my office, uh, <laughs> working, uh, you know, nonstop or in the archives. I wanted to get out and see the country I'd been writing about for all these years. And, uh, you know, I knew about Washington's travels as president, where he decided he had, you know, there were 13 essentially independent states. He had to do something to unify this country. So he went on these series of road trips, uh, starting in New England and then uh, all the way up to Kittery Point, Maine, and south all the way to, to Savannah. And I thought, well, my wife had just retired. Uh, we had a new puppy named Dora. And I do my John Steinbeck invitation, uh, who in Travels with Charlie traveled the country in search of America. I wanted to travel the country with Melissa and Dora uh, following Washington's footsteps. So your first stop was? Well, our first stop was Mount Vernon. And, uh, you know, Washington was probably the most reluctant president we've ever had. He really did not want to do it. He knew how hard it was going to be. And, uh, hey, he had won the revolution. But, uh, you know, so he, he departed from there, and so did we. And so we uh, – Mount Vernon, I'm, I'm happy to report, is dog-friendly. And so we were, you know, walking the grounds with, with Dora and uh, sort of channeling Washington as he set out on uh, the, the tour that would take him to New York, where he's going to be inaugurated president. Right. Which New York is where the first, uh, essentially, the president's house was. But uh, he also took a trip to Long Island. And you believe to thank, because covertly, uh, his spying that helped him out for a few years there. Yeah, it's it's a topic you're fairly familiar with, yeah. Brian. Uh, and you know, I was following both in your footsteps and George. But um, yeah, it's it's the tour that is a conundrum. Uh, there's absolutely no newspaper coverage of it. For four days, he uh, he he toured Western Long Island, uh, getting as far west as Setauket, New York. And what was he doing? Um, uh, it, well, what he was doing was uh, visiting uh, the, the sort of the nerve centers of the Culper Spy Ring, uh, where uh, uh, messages were were uh, delivered from uh, a supposed loyalist in New York all the way to an inn in Setauket, uh, New York, where it was then uh, they were sailed across Long Island, uh, eventually getting their way to Washington at, at the Hudson River. And, Washington was, and just a few others, were the only ones who knew of the identities of these spies, and uh, which was still a secret to the spies' own families, because if this revolution should fail, uh, they'd be in big trouble if Britain came back into power. And so this was secret. This was a way for him to thank uh, these, these people who had been so important in winning the American Revolution, but keeping it under the radar. And so it was just a fascinating uh, journey to follow. So, and you put your own reflections on that too. And you also you also mentioned that he goes to uh, Boston, and at, at the time, there's times where he was not able to stay in places. Other times, he thought when it was a public house, it was a private house, right? Yeah, yeah. He made the decision from the beginning that he was not going to uh, purposely stay at people's private homes. He was going to stay in public taverns, and this is when. 
public taverns were kind of the uh, roadside motels of his day. The beds were terrible. The food was worse. Uh, flea infested, all of this kind of thing. And he had a, a, a very small entourage, you know, just a little over a half dozen people. And uh, he traveled by horse-drawn carriage. And there were times in New England where he'd knock on the door at night looking for a place to stay and not be recognized and told he couldn't stay there and would have to go find another <laughs> tavern. I mean, can you imagine this? This is a long way from traveling in Air Force One. Well, I mean, he was out there. He was the unifying character. Underneath, he saw the rivalry take root, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. And he knew how differing the views they had of this country, one with the power of the president, the other one, um, the other one who saw more widespread. Uh, and they knew they were going to be locking horns. How did Washington look to bring the country together the best possible in his travels? And what do you think he discovered in doing so? Yeah, well, he realized that this political divide was coming, and uh, you know he had kept it under the lid for a year or two, but it, w- it was coming, and it was happening in his own cabinet. And what he wanted to do before that honeymoon period was over was to create a sense of nationhood. By uh, this is before mass media, you know, before you could turn on your TV and see the president talking to you. He figured he had to go to each as many of the towns and villages and cities in this country as possible, and and show the people in person uh, that uh, there was now something bigger than their town, their state. There was something called the United States of America, and he was their leader. And so, uh, what you know, he did this. You know, that Washington slept here is kind of a a, a, you know, a humorous catchphrase. But what we began to understand was it's a tremendous amount of work as he went from state to state, establishing a sense of national unity and national pride. And so that when the partisan divide split wide open uh, in the years after uh, he took these tours, he, uh, he had built a country that was built to last, that would transcend any one leader uh, to be a, a nation of laws. When you're doing this, you, have, you go to a newspaper and see what the coverage is like. And you did discover, am I right, that almost everywhere he went, there were big crowds. Yes, yes. You know, one of the things that we did before uh, we left, I uh, uh, made a list of all the towns he visited. There are more than 100 of them. And reached out to the librarians and our historical societies in each town and was, began to ask them what memories are there of George Washington's travels. And so I began to get uh, diaries, newspaper articles from the 19th century when people would say their memories uh, of, of Washington's visit. And it was clear this was big news for everyone. I mean, can you imagine the president, uh, not only the president, but the, the general who had won the American Revolution arriving in your town. And so he, he would follow these little country roads. Often they would be lined with the people as they watched him make his way to the next town. And so uh, to make a, a, a bigger show of it, uh, he would often get out of his carriage uh, dressed in his general's uniform, mount his great big white horse, and ride down Main Street to just thunderous acclaim. And so it really made an impression, and it really made people realize they were something, part of something that was bigger than their town. So along the way, you, you even though as much as Washington lives up to the hype, he has this leadership ability, he has the track record, he had sacrifice uh, for this country. Not a perfect person. In what ways stood out to you that he was human? Yeah. Well, you know, all sorts of ways. For one, he was a slaveholder. 
um, you know, he was he became a slaveholder at 11 years old when his father died, and he inherited a couple of enslaved people, and yet, um, uh, and you know, he by the after the revolution he realized that you know the that slavery was not a good thing for this union of states he was trying to create that at some point that would have to be dealt with and yet he you know was born a slaveholder and at mount vernon uh, there were more than 300 enslaved people roughly half of them were owned by washington the other half were owned by the estate of of martha's deceased husband and so you know it was a part of his life, and it was only upon his death that he would free his enslaved workers. But you know that's not a little small accomplishment given where he began. You know he would be the only slaveholding founding father to free his enslaved workers. He was making a statement, and yet he was not perfect. Um, you know he grew up with this institution, and so I think we need to look at him and realize you know th- this is a complicated legacy uh, that 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 our country comes from, and it's a complicated legacy that Washington came from. But there at the very beginning of our history, no matter how you see it, stands George Washington. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot, a lot of, in the South, they would often say, yeah, yeah, you guys, you, you don't have slaves, but you don't need them. Right? You know, this is what I was born into. This is our economy to try to say, right. you know, John Adams, don't be so high and mighty. You have a totally different lifestyle. And, you know, one of the things we realized in this, Rhode Island, you know, the the last state to join the Union, Rhode Island um, was the the slave trading capital of the United States, a New England state. Uh, They they would, um, Rhode Island farms provided the southern states with many of the the provisions they needed. Uh, They've been called the commissary of the South. This was a national issue. You know, we have a tendency to see southern uh, slavery as, as all Southern, but no, the, everyone was complicit. There were textile mills throughout uh, 19th century America using uh, Southern uh, cotton to weave fabrics. This, this was, you know, is, 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 this is something that transcended any right. one section. So uh, Nathaniel Philbrick is our, our guest. You got to go out and grab his book. It's called Travels with George in Search of Washington and His Legacy. So Nathaniel, you also go through and look at maybe what Washington would think today, the way we are divided. But we were divided then. James Monroe, you point out, was a big critic of uh, Washington, although he looked up to him and obviously mentored by him in many ways. But he became a conciliator, too, when he became president, did a very similar thing. He traveled around and wanted people to see their president, to make them part of a country. When you look at Washington, he's even though the issues are different, the divisions were still there, and the goal was to bring them together, right? Absolutely. You know, we, we you know, sometimes like to think of the past as a better time or whatever. But no, by the second term of his presidency, America was as divided, uh, you know, the partisanship divide was as ugly as anything we're seeing today. But he still believed that it was worth reaching out across the, the divide and trying to uh, see people as part of one country. You know, and you're right. Monroe was uh, one of Washington's fiercest critics when Washington was alive. And yet 30 years after Washington's death, when Monroe becomes president, he evokes Washington and um, uh, has his own tour very much in the same fashion as Washington did uh, in the previous century. And so I think this is the lasting legacy of Washington. 
you know, no matter how bad it seems, the union is something we need to hold near and dear if we are going to continue to be a country uh, that calls itself the United States of America. So you wrote three uh, books about Washington. Is, what did you take away from this trip uh, that you didn't know before? Yeah, well, you know, what I began to see is, you know, yes, there's Washington, the the general, the president, and he's often seen as kind of remote, you know, the opposite of a backslapper. But in following Washington and reading his diary and reading the accounts of, of, of citizens who, who, you know, saw him coming, you begin to see a different kind of Washington, the traveler, the human being, someone who would get off his horse and help uh, some workers finish the uh, building the one-room schoolhouse in <laughs> Oyster Bay, New York, these kinds of things. And so, you know, this was a, also a man who would say, I am president, but I am also only a man. Uh, he really wanted people to realize he was one of them. He wasn't anything extraordinary other than the fact that he was George Washington. But he had that presence in that celebrity by almost all accounts, correct? People felt him oh, before absolutely. they saw him. Yeah, you know, we've all encountered famous people in some way or another. Washington had a charisma, uh, a sense of self that was off the charts. Uh, uh, his his general, uh, uh, Henry Knox, would once say it was almost supernatural when he would come into a room. Uh, you know, And so he used that star power to create a government that would transcend the ego of any person. He used that to create a country of laws. And for that, I think we should all be forever grateful. And lastly, just to him as a person, he had the natural leadership skills. He was fearless in battle. He made some mistakes as a colonel, didn't make those same mistakes as a general, able to put together the army and change tactics in the middle of a war and become basically a guerrilla force that waited its time and was ready to strike and gain momentum. I get it. Was able to work with French uh, generals in order to be successful. Lafayette, I understand it. But he also had vulnerabilities. Is it true? And I don't want to put something in your mind that you don't feel you can get on board with. But he always felt a little intimidated by the intellect and the uh, the education of Jefferson, of Madison, of uh, the other founding fathers, of Benjamin Franklin, who were much more learned, had much more formal schooling. Absolutely. You know, he had not had a, a formal education. And when his, his father died and there wasn't the money to send him to England for, you know, that, that, that kind of education. And he always felt a sense of inadequacy when it came to his education. But I think that's what really made him the great yeah. man he would become. Because, you know, he didn't, he was not the opposite of pretentious in an academic way, in an intellectual way. He wanted to make things work. He didn't have to be the, the smartest person in the room. He wanted to be the one that made things happen. So listen, uh, Nathaniel got out of the house and wrote a book about it, and he did it in a very special way in an extraordinary book. Uh, It's certainly to win awards. Nathaniel Philbricks, his latest book is Travels with George in Search of Washington and His Legacy. Uh, What a great thing to bring with you, especially if you're looking to get the book on tape and you know you're going to be on the road if you actually actually can get a few days off. Uh, Congratulations, Nathaniel. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, Brian, thanks. It's always great to talk to you. Uh, Same here. Congratulations on the book. When we come back, I'll finish up with you. 1-866-408-7669. The Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base. It's Brian Kilmeade. More to know. Sponsored by Oxford Gold Group. Call 833-600-GOLD to secure your retirement. He goes, do you ever watch film? 
And I said, no, I don't. It's I just run by guys. If, I, if I'm feeling good, I'm feeling good. <laughs> I do watch keep it simple. When, when the team is showing it. And I actually do go up to Tom because I know Tom watches like, I don't know, 40 hours of film a week. I go, Tom, who's covering me this week? What type of coverages are they doing? That is so funny. Uh, Rob Kronkowski talking about not watching film. He has Brady watch the film and tell him who's covering him this week. That's part of that new Peyton Manning, Eli Manning show where they basically sit on separate couches and analyze the game like two elite quarterback brothers. People really like that, though. It has a it's lot great. of buzz. Oh, it's fantastic. I, I got to watch the whole game. I only just dipped in and out. And they have other celebrities call in. I think Barkley called in the first week. Um, um, uh, uh, Travis Kelsey called in, I think, this week. They had a few great guys uh, call in, too. So, um, and a lot of them are active players. Uh, it makes me wonder if there's even more to know. We already played that liner. You missed it. Oh, really? You did, oh, yeah. you did in the beginning? Okay, sorry. <laughs> hey, uh, we have uh, Oscar De La Hoya this. Let's, uh, yeah, let me talk about the Oscar De La Hoya story. How about this? The 48-year-old De La Hoya leaving Louisiana with his girlfriend, Holly Saunders, on TMZ, as the boxing legend, how he felt about being hospitalized with COVID, even though he was vaccinated. He said it was five days of hell, but what he really wanted to do to talk about was the re- returning to the ring. You know, I'm going to call out for my next fight, Floyd Medweather. He says his life is not fulfilling. I watched him with Mike Tyson on his podcast. He says his life has not been fulfilled since he left boxing, yet he's got one of this, this huge promotion company. It sounds like he needs a psychiatrist. I know. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. Uh, yeah, we have a lot more uh, more to know, including Harold Ford coming out and telling Democrats, take the bipartisan package and put the other one on hold. Take the win. Hey, listen, AOC. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.